0: Hello and welcome to ABS in Mind, the podcast from the staff here at DebtWire ABS. We'll take you behind the curtains of the asset backed securities markets and the loans that they help finance. I'm Al Yoon and I'll be hosting today. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Today is June 11th, 2020. And uh, thank you for tuning in to ABS in Mind. Um, which this time might be a little bit different than our usual format. Um, but first, let me tell you about our guests. Uh, joining us today is Michael Bright, the CEO of the Structured Finance Association. Uh, Michael's been a government guy, working as Ginny May's EVP, COO, and acting president. Uh, he's been a policy guy who, while working for Senator Bob Corker, or- oversaw GSE reform efforts after the last financial crisis. And he cut his teeth in the mortgage business at Wachovia and Countrywide. Hello Michael, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me. Great to be here.
0: Sure. And, uh, second, we have John Wylan, our debt wire, ABS managing editor and a veteran of print journalism. Hello, John. <laughs> Hi, Al. Thanks for joining us. Um, Thanks for having me. So, uh. Many of these ABS podcasts are dedicated to investment strategies in the markets, and we have a lot of fun with that. Uh, But this time we're going to take a look at some nuts and bolts issues of how these markets work, uh, specifically within the unusual environment of today. Um, We have greater economic uncertainty and also greater uncertainty over the world in which we do business. Uh so Michael, um the FF, the SFA cares about anything and everything related to structured products. Uh, that much is obvious. Mm-hmm. But I see it's also making an effort to make sure these markets function not in a vacuum, uh, but in sync with the broader changes taking place in our society. Uh can you tell me about some of the efforts that uh you guys are working on in that
1: regard? Yes. Yeah. Sure. Thank thanks for having me and it's it's good to be here and to talk about this. Um, you know, so so it's Running the trade association like SFA means you're going to wear a lot of different hats and you need to be effective and a lot of different work streams. And so it is. we will always um, be a convening organization that gets issuer, investor, and analytic provider in the middle of all structured deals um, together to discuss you know everything from the small, like uh, changes to documentation and changes to standards, and I think we're going to talk about some of that stuff with LIBOR, which isn't small. But just to say, we're talking about you know deal documents and, and the legal component of it, to the medium size, which is um, you know the healthy functioning of these markets and how to build governance and best practices and better communication port- protocols, etc., to the big, which um, is You know, includes uh, how are we going to make sure that we're evolving with things like ESG uh, initiatives, and how is that going to impact structured finance markets? How um, what are what are what's over the horizon on things like LIBOR? What's over the horizon in terms of regulatory changes in China and in Europe um, and coming out of DC? And then there's the meta stuff, which is um, how can we make sure that we're a leader for our market and pushing for the type of change that will help our markets serve the economy for decades to come. And so on that really big meta stuff, there's been quite a lot of activity lately. Now we're not new, to th- these types of discussions. but um, I live in DC and we've been under, I think we're at day 14 or something of civil protests um, in the wake of the George Floyd killing. but you, know, greater calls for equality and justice, racial equality, economic, equality and economic justice for communities of color. and it's spilling over into justifiable and understandable anger in, in our view. We as SFA set about the task roughly around a year ago, of saying and identifying the fact that the demographics in the leadership corridors of structured finance don't really look like the demographics of the country writ large. And that includes both racial diversity and gender diversity. Um, It's a predominantly white male industry. We all know that. We've all been to the conference. Um, And that's in our view, not a sustainable model for managing an an industry that's so critical to the allocation of credit in our overall economy. So we have several initiatives in place. One is the Women in Securitization Initiative, which aims to give um, women an opportunity to network and build relationships and have uh, sessions together and make sure that their voices are being heard and that their perspective is better represented in the decision-making uh, corridors and then we have a diversity and inclusion initiative that's aimed at bringing people of color and communities that maybe don't have ready access into our markets um, help them to to have access to our market not as charity but as a mechanism for making us better at understanding the perspective of these communities so that when we make um, strategic decisions about credit allocation and new products and new structures, et cetera, we're really thinking about all the communities across the U.S. And this was important before the George Floyd events. Um, It's now been given some rocket fuel. In the wake of the George Floyd events because everybody's paying attention to it and we're having this great national conversation um around these things but we really you know for us this is an initiative that we've been working on for a while and we think it's very important that in its simplest form when you come to our Vegas conference in let's say five to seven years when you look at the audience that the the audience looks more like the United States writ large and so that's kind of what we're trying to do and we think it's an important initiative um because because it'll help our, our market better serve the economy.
0: Uh, I see your point, Michael, but uh, what I wanted to ask you is, I mean, what are the members actually doing about it? I mean, mm-hmm. how receptive are they to your your efforts? I mean, you know, we we see a lot of Wall Street firms uh, talking about, uh, you know, what they should do in terms mm-hmm. of uh, diversity and, you know, paying a lot of lip service, sure. um, you know, to, to what extent uh, are, are, you know, Actual changes being adopted within Absolutely, Wall yeah. Street or within within the structured finance markets. Put it that no, way. look
1: total. Very good question, and and the answer um, is that if you look at at Wall Street or any community, there's a range of um, there's, there's a range of responses to that. So there there definitely are folks who are. Paying some lip service, or you know, maybe make a, a comment or two, or issue a quote, and that's, I guess, better than nothing. But you're right; that's not really going to move the needle. And it's, and it takes us back to kind of where you know we'll be in a situation where, as soon as this national attention moves on to the next thing, since our attention spans are short, um, we will lose the desire to actually effectuate change. And and so that's not really what SFA thinks is the right approach. Um, what can we do about it? Well, th- there are definitely things that we can and we are going to do about it. So, for example um it, it's 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 maybe a small thing, but we had several panels on the importance of d- diversity and perspectives that only comes from diversity and gender and diversity and race and uh in the industry. We had several panels on that at Vegas um just to sort of begin the conversation and make sure that people are aware that they need to be thinking about these things a little bit differently. We also had twelve keynote speakers and none of none of them were white males, so that was an important um thing for us to do just to show that you can put on a substance-rich conference, and you can say, look, let's let's really go for something big here and have it be all women or people of color or both uh, on all of our keynotes. And so that's something that we did with our conference in Vegas. And I, I think it's an important signal to send that this is something that we take seriously as an industry. Now, something I hear all the time when this topic comes up is very often senior leaders in the industry will say things like, I hear you and I'd love to be able to promote um, people of color or women in my organization. We love to have diversity, but I look around and I just don't have it. I don't have the candidates. I don't have the resumes. I don't have the people in the junior levels. So, you know, what what can I really do? And I think what that really speaks to is the fact that the structure of recruitment for, a lot, for our industry, but it's not just our industry. I mean, this exists in Hollywood and in tech and in public policy, you know, it exists in a lot of big industries. The structure is designed, it has some has some inherent barriers um, for folks who don't have parents in the industry or don't have ready access to the industry or maybe um, just aren't white and or come from, you know, HBCUs or, or, or whatnot. And so what I'm telling and what we're about what we're launching as an initiative and of telling people to think about is look at your recruitment strategy. Look at how you you know do you only recruit from your alma mater when you recruit from your alma mater, do you only recruit from like your fraternity or your major? What about um University of District of Columbia or Howard University or um, Hispanic serving institution? Uh, let, go to those places and and look for students who want to be in this industry and find them because you want their perspective and because they will bring value that you don't have and that you can't have without getting their, their perspective. And so we're trying to set up partnerships with some of these universities. We're gonna be announcing some in the coming weeks where um, we provide mentoring, internships, pipeline, programs into our industry, and really show that this is a, that you should be seeking this perspective just the way you seek any d- different perspective You know, when putting together a team that's gonna solve a problem because it makes the collective intelligence of your whole organization higher.
2: Right. And
0: as you mentioned, uh, you know, talking about your conference, uh, you know, years ahead, uh, you know, you were talking about things will look, look different next year, let's say, but, you know, several years out. I mean, this takes this takes time. Mm-hmm. And I certainly can see that, uh, uh, you know, the investment industry is actually making some changes because, you know, this ESG uh, uh, effort uh, that, you know, really started, you know, coming out, you know, in in a big way a couple of years ago you know i as a reporter initially you know pish posh that because i covered socially conscious mutual funds in the 1990s and you know, there was a lot of happy talk around it but you know not a lot happened with that at the time but you mm-hmm. know now uh you know big big pension funds are holding back uh you know billions of dollars unless they know that that'll be put to work you know with an esg uh agenda so that's right that's uh, right things are changing. Um, yep. And uh, just because uh, we're, we're running a little bit low on time now, I wanted to move ahead to, uh, you know, something more uh, market related. And that's uh, some uh, one of the uh, liquidity programs that the Federal Reserve has, in- has instituted uh, to try to uh, help the markets uh, during this uh, COVID-19 crisis. Mm-hmm. And that's the Terram Asset Backed Securities Loan Facility or TALF. Um, Something that's uh, the Fed resurrected in March. And, um, you know, there is some talk about that now because um, in March, uh, the markets were just headed, you know, one way and that was down. But mm. uh, today, the markets are, I mean, they're not back to when, where they once were, but, uh, you know, things are getting done, put it that way. There are, the are loans getting made, there yeah. are bonds getting sold. Um, so I just wanted to ask, you know, Michael, as uh, the CEO of the SFA, um, what are you hearing from members? I mean, is there still a need for this? Yeah.
1: So it's been, it's been coming up on about three months, I think, since the uh, announcement that Top was going to be set up. Took place. It's been a very busy three months on this topic, um, and a lot of corralling members to to get their perspectives on what clarity we need operationally from the Fed, and also providing the Fed data and some advocacy to include assets that you know weren't initially in the term sheet. We got some of those and didn't get all that we advocated for. Um, and so it's been quite a bit of uh, background work to get us to a point where this program can launch on June 17th in six days from now. And if need be, it can be successful so that market participants know how to use it. They know what the terms are. They know what the risks are. They know what the cost is, et cetera. We, we have pretty much one kind of major outstanding item, which is um, some questions around how to certify that adequate, quote, adequate credit was not available, which is one of the requirements for um, a lender to use health um and so we're actually having a call with the fed later today to go through some of that but it's very close to being ready to be operational now so i'm parallel in time to the work that we've done to help make this thing um able to be used and ready to be used as a safety net the markets as you point out have recovered and i think that there's some combination probably of um the market's understanding that the Fed ha- has taken this pandemic seriously and has, has made major, taken major strides, I mean, to reopen these 133 facilities that uh, haven't been used since the financial crisis, many of which were created during the financial crisis, but uh, haven't been used in 12 years, to reopen those and reopen those in a hurry. To flood the system with liquidity, meanwhile Congress is spending trillions of dollars of fiscal stimulus. Um, all of that stuff has had this effect of calming markets and bringing stability to them and tightening spreads. Uh, of course, stocks uh, at the moment are quite high in price, back to almost where they were. Um, at the same time, you know there is some inside of this. There, there is probably some. Um, twine weaved into sort of the uh, the overall market dynamic here that is that that has the view that COVID is maybe like a one and done type thing so there's a three-month hiccup um, is really bad but you know the trend we, we flatten the curve and the people are going to start going out in society and businesses can reopen um, there'll be some social distancing but treatment Critical care facilities, um, and, and potentially even a vaccine are not that long off, and so it's time to get back to life. Um, so that's, I think, partly to it, that 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 that's part of the explanation for why markets have recovered. Um, our view is that the ta- the success of Talif is not going to be measured by how many people use it. It's going to be measured by whether or not these markets remain stable, and it's New deals can be issued and spreads uh, are at manageable levels. That may at some point require, you know, some usage of health, uh, meaning, you know, a borrower actually pledges collateral to the facility. It may not, but it's okay. It doesn't matter. The program succeeds, It has succeeded as long as these markets can continue to function. Now, I, I do think, though, that, again, some of this market um, correction in the last few months ha- has increasingly or, or at least in part been due to the idea that, Covid will soon pass, and that may or may not end up being the case. And which, and so because of that, I think it's important that TELF at least be up and operational in the event that it is needed. So if we see a second wave or we see um, job numbers take another, you know, about face and start going in the wrong direction again you know, we want to have the safety net there and the Fed takes that very seriously as do we. And so we think that it's important that we get this thing up and running and we, you know, we don't, we don't think that the work that we've done over the last three months is in any way a waste of time. I I, I just put it
0: that way. In fact, I mean, I think I've been reading in some of the street research that, uh, I mean, just the presence of the program is helping the markets and, uh, and if the economy does take a turn for the worse, uh, um in, in in any number of months then uh you know people may not you know price in worst case scenarios anymore because these fed liquidity programs are in place uh, do you think mm-hmm. that's accurate
1: um yeah no i think that's exactly right i think that um you know the federal reserve is the ultimate calming factor and it doesn't always need to, you know, central banking one-on-one, going back to the concept behind having a central bank um, is to lend freely at a penalty rate. And if you tell the markets, you're willing to do that, the markets can figure it out, knowing what the, what the outside parameter is or the or the bottom the bottom bid will always be. And I think that that's, that's success. So yes, we, it, it may, there may be some deals that go through TALF. Um, certainly if, again, if COVID, if COVID sort of has a, a you know, a reemergence, I think that there definitely would be some deals that used to help. But even if not, I think the work that's been done has been critical to helping bring this type of stability. Okay.
0: Thank you. Um, let's skip over to another issue, if if you don't mind, um, and that's regarding the uh, transition uh, away from LIBOR. Uh, this is something that the SFA and other uh, organizations and regulators have been sort of pondering and uh, you know working with for for well years now. And um, you know it's something that has been you know I haven't looked at because over the past few months because you know you're just so focused on what's going on with COVID and the the, and you know right now at this point in time but it's an important thing and the change is is, is coming up and we've got some you know some things that could probably happen in 2021 um john i'm wondering if you could take over from here because uh, sure. you've been really following it for debt wire
2: yeah i i have um I, michael i wanted to talk ask you a little bit about the uh the prospect of a legislative solution to uh, uh, the problem of LIBOR and legacy contracts. And for those listeners who don't know what that means, uh, those few who may not know what that means, this is the issue of um, old bond bond contracts uh, that are referenced to LIBOR, but they have no fallback mechanism. They are seen as nearly impossible to add language to or to change the benchmark just because of the difficulty of reaching all of the investors and getting, getting them all to agree on something. Um, there, there's obviously been a lot of talk about this, including at the February conference. Um, and you know, I understand that there's a focus on doing this in New York, whose law governs a lot of the contracts.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I, I believe uh, just a few weeks after the conference, the, the Fed's ARC Alternative Reference Rates Committee um, released proposed legislation for New York. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give us an update on you know kind of what the status is of this?
1: Sure. Well, um, I think I see the uh, the art making this proposal as a very important and positive step. I, y- you know, it, I, I think it speaks a little bit to the evolution of the way market participants have looked at the risks associated with the cessation of LIBOR and how it will impact um, legacy contracts that don't have adequate fallback language for you know in the event that LIBOR were to go away, which most people did not contemplate when contracts were being written. Mm -hmm. that are years in length um you know i I would say a year ago the idea of using legislation had mixed reviews you know there were some market participants that felt strongly that that was probably inevitable and i think there were some who felt that that should be avoided um as time has gone on i sense that the needle has moved a little in the direction of more consensus that legislation if appropriately worded would be very helpful I, i agree with that Personally, I mean that's always seemed intuitive to me. I, I I think that if the industry can come together, buyer and seller alike, um, and agree on some principles for what a legislative fix might might be, that that makes a heck of a lot of sense. And I think that the RX proposal um, has a lot of great solutions in it. And so, to me, it seems like the right evolution of this discussion to be talking about, um, you know, a state level amendment to these contracts with some language that the ARC is proposed, and that seems fair to all participants involved. Without that, it's very possible that we risk, you know, quite a bit of confusion on the part of consumers um, and potentially even political backlash toward the industry, which we really don't want to have to deal with. Um, So handicapping it, though, the likelihood, I I don't really know, um, to be completely honest. I mean, the more the Fed – uses its weight to say this is necessary and it will help consumers and it, it will take a lot of confusion off the table, then I think the more likely uh, it, you know, it has a chance in any legislator, whether it be U.S. Congress or whether it be the New York State legislature. Um, so to really get it done, it'll take more than just uh industry advocacy it's going to take the fed really saying hey this is this is a technical fix that um is going to really alleviate a lot of confusion for people and it's fair and we can show you that it's fair and so if if the arc and the fed can do that then um it's certainly in, in no way outside their own possibility uh that members you know of the the new york state legislature or u.s congress but it looks like we're going the state route um can figure this out and to get it included i think that I think it's very it's very positive that the Fed and the ARC has put together this
2: proposal. Has New York acted on it? I mean, it's it's great that the Ark proposed it, but you know, somebody right. in the New York legislature has to introduce yeah. it, and then it has to move through. Is that has that process begun?
1: So, so my understanding is that there's um, mixed results. That you know, there are some folks who are paying attention to it, uh, and, and who's on on whose radar this thing is now uh, living, which is which is good. It is. Legislation is a process. Um, you know, I worked on the Hill for a while in the Senate, and things tend to happen at the very last minute. <laughs> so, right. you know, right. there's always a lot of competing priorities for any um, legislator uh, and for any leg- so to, to, you So, know, part of the challenge here, and this has been a challenge with labor all along, is that you say, "Hey, there's a tsunami coming," um, and everybody goes, "Oh my gosh, what? When?" And you say, yeah, to 2021." a member of Congress, any Congress is going to be like, uh, yeah, get back to me in 18 months. (laughs) We've got like social and social riots taking place and, and, and protests. And, um, we've got a pandemic that we have to deal with and, you know, trying to figure out when to reopen schools. Like you're talking about an interest rate in 2021, like we'll you know, Call me later. Um, and th- that's that's really been a dynamic that we've been facing for, a, you know, for a while now. And that that's just a function of the, sh- the, the, you know, the immediacy of how po- politicians and the political system sort of work. So uh, there's plenty of I would just say there's plenty of wood to chop to uh, raise the awareness of legislators all, all over the place in New York and in and D.C., of the importance of this. But like I said at the beginning, if the Federal Reserve really takes this thing on and uses its might to say this is an important compromise legislation, then I think the prospects, you know, do go up.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you know, the 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 timing issue is interesting, but the, the field is shortening. I mean, when I first started paying close attention to this, it was, you know, three plus years. And, you know, people are like, well, you know, people, there's a sense that it will kind of take care of itself in three years. But now it's 18 months. <laughs>
1: totally. So, and, and, um, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of, not only is it th- it's three years out, but like, is this really going to happen? They're not really going to right, happen, Right. You know, so it's just a process.
2: Yeah, well, could, could you discuss a little bit the pro, the, the possibility that uh, – there's also been a lot of talk about this, the possibility of uh, – or, you know, po- possibly growing probability at this point of some form of zombie LIBOR living on past 2021, you know, if, if for nothing else, just for these legacy contracts.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're not really – we're certainly not advocating for that, and, and, and we see that as – we. We have to take the Fed at their word that that is not what they want to have happen. And so um, I, I, I would say that to the extent that we're not putting energy, you know, the one work stream is, of course, uh, this proposed legislation, looking through it, coming to terms with consensus on it, and, and providing feedback via the ARC mechanism. And then as needed, when we get there, supporting it. The other, really, the other work stream is not going to be about law, zombie labor. It's going to be about w- what happens if both legislatures, you know, if all these legislators say, forget it, we're not getting to it, or they don't get to it in time, um, and the what-if scenarios, you know, they, they don't really contemplate a continuing of the zombie library as much as um, can we negotiate uh, our way around this? Can we have some industry best practices? Can we come up with some terms that we think we can all agree are favorable so that um, we at least have some protection against litigation?
0: Hey, thanks. Thanks for that, Michael. Um, I think we're going to get, uh, ready to close out here because our time is, uh, is ticking, but, uh, oh, just one more thing. I wanted to make reference to, uh, the big SF Vegas conference and something that we've mentioned on this podcast already. Um, that's a, a con- gathering that really, uh, serves as the main sounding board for the industry concerns each year. Um, that's still on for 2021, 20, but, uh, but a new date I see Michael.
2: That's correct.
1: So um, as nobody knows what the trajectory of COVID is going to be. Nobody knows. It's impossible to predict. I mean, you know, I did spend the entire month of March and April reading epidemiological surveys and trying to understand viruses and such. But I just kind of came to the conclusion that professionals don't know where this is headed. I'm never going to figure it out either. We had, um, you know, the opportunity presented itself for us to move the conference to May uh, temporarily, so just for 2021. Which does gives us a couple of nice things. The first is that it, it gives us two extra two two and a half extra months to see the trajectory of COVID before sponsors need make need to make commitments to sponsor and before participants need to make commitment to travel. Um, so we think the extra time will be helpful just to add some certainty and we'll know a little bit more by the fall where this, this thing is going. It also moves us out of flu season, um, you know. So. It makes hygiene and those concerns and health concerns a little bit mitigated. We're still going to have to take very seriously um, dealing with health concerns at the conference, which we will. But, you know, moving out of flu season hopefully helps a little bit. And then, of course, the pools will be open. So, hey, like Uh (laughs) – This will be the first time we went to Vegas and had this conference and was it wasn't in February. It could be a different vibe that could be a lot of fun. Um, that wasn't the driver. That just happened to be a side benefit. And so um, we're excited about it. We think it could be uh, – it's still going to be a great conference, of course. Um, but not being in flu season and having a couple of extra months figured out, we thought it was a prudent move. And when the opportunity presented itself, we jumped on it.
0: Yeah, a warmer climate. You might have uh, more spouses joining the uh, participants, be great. right? Be great. Sure, <laughs> absolutely. In the kids. Okay. All right. Well, listen, that does it for uh, this episode of ABS in Mind. Uh, thanks to Michael Bright, uh, CEO of the SFA, uh, for joining us, and John Weiland, uh, our managing editor here at DebtWire ABS. Thanks uh, for having me. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks. That's hey, great. thank you. Thanks for listening to ABS in Mind. If you're hungry for the skinny on asset backed bonds, residential and commercial mortgage debt, consider debtwire.com or just tune in here next time. Also look to us on social media.